This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Goldman Sachs recently announced a new investment initiative of more than $10 billion to advance racial equity and economic opportunity by investing in Black women. Today, we'll explore the topic of investing in this drastically underinvested group of people in a three-part episode. First, we'll talk about the gaps that Black women face and actions to address them, as outlined by Giselle George-Joseph and her colleagues in Goldman Sachs Research in a new report they put out entitled Black Womenomics. After that, we'll discuss the One Million Black Women Initiative and the firm's efforts around racial equity with Goldman Sachs Chairman and CEO David Solomon and Margaret Anadu, the firm's Global Head of Sustainability and Impact in our Asset Management Division. And finally, Margaret herself will speak with Melissa Bradley, an advisory council member of the One Million Black Women Initiative and managing partner of 1863 Ventures about her personal experience as a Black woman helping build communities for entrepreneurs. Thank you all for joining us for this conversation. To kick us off, I'll start with Giselle to discuss the Black Womenomics report I just mentioned. Giselle, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Jake. So let's start with the wealth gap among Black women. Talk about how big the gap is and the main drivers behind it. So Black women face a 90% wealth gap. If we look at single Black women, for instance, their median net worth, and that's sort of everything they own minus their debt, in 2019 was just $7,000. This is single white women at $85,000 and single white men at $92,000. Our team's analysis showed really that lower levels of Black earnings accounted for two-thirds of the average wealth gap and the remainder really explained by a variety of other factors. We're talking about education, access to capital, and access to financial information. If we look at earnings gap, for instance, Black women experience a 35% hourly earnings gap relative to white men. We also saw that Black women's ability to remain employed tends to really fall much more sharply during a recession, and it takes longer to recover. And we saw that again on Friday when the Labor Department reported that the unemployment rate for Black women in February rose, despite a generally stronger than expected report. So let's talk about trends. What does the data show about how the earnings gap for Black women trends over the last several decades? And are we making any progress to close it or what does the data show us? The data shows that progress in closing the gap is actually, it has stalled in the last couple of decades. In the 1980s, we had seen a narrowing in the gap. For example, the wage gap between Black women and white women was about 5%. That number is now 15%. And those factors that contribute to that are a lot harder to measure. So we're talking about racial discrimination here, you know, differences in school quality, differences in career opportunities, and even differences in social networks. And then we also see that Black women remain overrepresented in lower paying industries and occupations. So it's not a great trend. So you talked about this wealth gap. Describe the relationship between the wealth gap and some of the broader economic disadvantages Black women face from education to healthcare to access to capital and beyond that. I mean, all of this is just so complicated and it's all sort of interrelated. There are some critical factors that are foundational in building wealth. And in most of these categories, Black women tend to be among the most disadvantaged groups. So if we take education, for example, Black students often attend a primary or secondary school that are on average less funded and frequently segregated. We're talking six decades after Brown versus Board of Education. 
and 70% of Black students still attend the school where the majority of students are non-white. One of the stats that we leveraged from our chief economist, Jan Hatzius' research, in the top of mind on investing in racial equality, we put that out last summer, it really sort of encapsulates the whole story. Infants of all races show the same cognitive ability. I'll just sit with that for a second. But then Black children in the U.S. start to fall behind around age two simply because of uneven opportunities. And then that gap just continues to grow. Black women are also less likely to have the basics they need or even get the access they need. So, for example, a third of the homes where Black women live are estimated to be unhealthy. Black women have three times, three times the pregnancy-related mortality rate than white women. And Black business owners are 20% less likely to fund their startups with a bank business loan. I mean, all of this have really broad repercussions for Black women with really large negative effects on college graduation rates, the labor market, and ultimately on life outcomes. So when you think about these gaps, I mean, and the, and the fact that some of them are growing and getting worse, you know, some people might throw up their hands, but we're in the solutions business. What are the public and private investment opportunities that can help close some of these gaps for Black women? I mean, closing the gaps really require a commitment across both public and private sectors. It's really sort of all of us in society coming together on this. And so we offer a broad list of actions in the research report. I should say that none of this is exhaustive. And we also present these recommendations with the caveat that any efforts to actually address any of these issues have to be done with the engagement of Black women. So I'll say that first. But in the study, we focus on the power of private capital in driving change. And we highlight a few strategies that really get at more of the structural barriers that have limited Black women's progress. So I'll talk about sort of quickly the four that we're focused on. One, it's using private capital to reduce barriers to college education. That would really increase graduation rates for Black women and then help to narrow the educational achievement gap that we saw. Number two is providing access to capital for Black women business owners, and that would help reduce dependence on more expensive forms of credit, which we often saw Black women use, and then reducing dependence also on personal savings, and that would help just grow long-term wealth. Number three, it's increasing financial education for Black women. Overall, financial wellness just impacts everything, right? From the ability to make better day-to-day living and budgeting decisions and then to managing just risk of financial pitfalls. And then number four is sort of a catch-all category that we're calling just investing in Black communities. I mean, we cannot understate the value of living in a safe neighborhood with suitable childcare, the ability to access quality healthcare. Those things are so basic and so essential. And they're needed not just to ensure that Black women can maximize their potential, but really to save lives. So Giselle, a lot of facts and figures at your fingertips. Let's talk stories. What is your personal story about how you ended up researching Black womenomics at Goldman Sachs? So I am from a small island in the Caribbean. I joke with my friends here at Goldman that it's in our constitution to tell people about the country because it's so small. But I came to the U.S. almost 22 years ago for college. And, you know, while Dominica is, you know, much less rich than the U.S. from a GDP perspective, 
a lot of the disadvantage faced by Black women in the U.S. actually does not exist on the island because the vast majority of people are Black. In fact, you know, a, a woman, a Black woman, was the prime minister of the island for essentially the first 15 years of my life. So the reality of what it means to be a Black woman here in America has really been a long learning process for me. And so just given my experience, I'm just so proud of our long history in the research department. As I said, I've been at the firm for almost 16 years, and we've written on the topic of womenomics in research for more than 20 years. This idea that, and the data confirms it, that investing in women is not just a fair thing to do, but that it's good for business and that it's good for the economy. And we actually, the term was first coined by Kathy Matsui, so I'll give her a shout out. She was our chief Japan portfolio strategist, and she wrote the first piece on womenomics about 20 years ago, 22 years ago, I think 1999. So for me as a Black woman, I was just really thrilled to work with Jan Hatzius and Dan Striven and Dan Milo on our global economics team to be able to deliver this important work on Black womenomics for the firm. Well, Giselle, thank you for joining us today, and thank you for the research that you've done. Such a pleasure, Jake. Thank you. I'm now joined by David Solomon, the firm's chairman and CEO, and Margaret Anadu, who was recently named Global Head of Sustainability and Impact in our Asset Management Division. Margaret is also one of the leaders of One Million Black Women, the investment initiative we announced last week that we're going to discuss in more detail right now. David, from the moment you became CEO, you put a big focus on building diversity within the firm. And since last summer, you put a major focus on promoting racial equity outside the firm through efforts like our Fund for Racial Equity and some of the lending that we're doing to support minority and underserved business owners. How do you see this initiative, One Million Black Women, advancing what we're already doing to promote racial equity, both inside and outside of the firm? So I appreciate it, Jake, and happy to be with you and Margaret today. As we came out of the events this summer, we spent a lot of time trying to think about how Goldman Sachs could really make a difference to close some of the gaps that have been deeply rooted in society for a long time. And one of the things I did personally was I went out and tried to talk to a number of our Black partners to try to think about ways that we could use our resources, our platform to make a real difference. And you know, I was thrilled when Margaret Dina Powell, Asai Pompey came to me and said, hey, we have an idea for how we could make a real sustainable investment over time in trying to close a bunch of the economic gaps that exist in particular with Black women. And Black women are important not just because, you know, Black women deserve support and there are big gaps that affect Black women, but Black women are the heart of Black families. They support Black families. And as we dug into and Margaret, Dina, and Asai and the team started doing research, they recognized through research that was done that there were significant gaps. And we thought that our experience with programs we've built in the past taught us that we could use our resources, our capital, and our convening ability to get investments directed in a way that we could close some of these gaps. And the more research we did, the more we saw that there was a real benefit economic growth by doing that. And so, you know, out of some of those ideas, Margaret, Dina, Asahi, and a broader team have developed this platform, which we're now very proud to be rolling out, but it's the start of a journey to try to really have a broad impact on closing some of the economic inequality that exists in the Black population here in the United States. Thanks, David. Margaret, David referenced the research our colleague Giselle George-Joseph, who's in our research division, laid out all the opportunity gaps that Black women face in this country, from wealth, education, health, and many, many more. 
How is this initiative designed to try to address some of those really damning statistics and really move the needle? You know, I think what's really noteworthy about the challenges that Giselle highlighted, in addition to, of course, just the severity of the disparities facing Black women, is just how wide ranging they are. Right. These are issues that literally touch black women at every stage of their lives from you know, where they go to the doctor, where they live, how they learn, you know, how they work. And so with that complexity, the challenge in front of us was how we as an organization can contribute in all of these spaces in a way that's true to who we are. And I think even in more importantly, in a way that leverages our particular strengths and expertise. And so when you consider the solutions that have been proven to narrow the opportunity gaps that Giselle mentioned, you know, we think the capital is an important ingredient in every single one. And so that's why we're leading with investing and why the $10 billion of capital is so important to what we want to achieve. For example, if we want Black women to have better access to health care throughout their lives, we have to invest in the facilities locally that provide that care, right? That's capital. If we want to see the entrepreneurial spirit of Black women fully actualized, we have to ensure we're providing the funding that those businesses need to scale. That's also capital. You know, Giselle talked about the poor condition of housing that many Black women live in today, right? We have to invest in better and more affordable housing. Again, that's capital. And so, you know, even challenges like narrowing the digital divide so that Black women can research and apply for new jobs or, you know, in this moment, we're going to ensure their kids can learn virtually. That requires capital investment in infrastructure that's lacking in many Black communities. And so those are just a few examples. But stepping back, we know that we can drive real impact in addressing these challenges when we marry the power of investment, right? And that's where we can lean into businesses and expertise from across our entire firm with the partners and leaders from these communities, you know, especially Black women leaders that we're going to have around the table with us. So, Margaret, some might hear the name and say, why specifically one million Black women? Well, why do we use the number a million Black women and why include a number at all? So stepping back to what we're focused on here, right, racial inequality, gender inequality, and of course, just the intersectionality there, right? These are massive, complex challenges. And so we wanted to stay grounded and not lose sight of why this all matters. And at the end of the day, it's the impact that these challenges have on individual people. And so, you know, this is about making a difference for a mother, a daughter, a neighbor. And so when you step back, the cost of racial and gender inequality, of course, it's significant in the context of our society and our economy, But it's also just the sum of opportunities of individual people that they're not having. And that's one by one. And so in order to center the inherently personal nature of this initiative, again, starting on day one, right, this is the beginning of a journey, you know, we named it as simply as we could. And so from that, you know, the name One Million Black Women was created. Of course, there's also a legacy there, right? When we launched 10,000 Women, focused on women entrepreneurs around the world and 10,000 small businesses to spur economic growth here in the U.S., we held ourselves accountable to those targets, those human targets. And it served us well. And so similar here, we want to hold ourselves accountable. You know, we've added two zeros. One million is certainly ambitious, but importantly, we think it's achievable. David, another round of skeptics might say, why is a public company getting in this space? And, you know, there's always been a fine line around when to speak out on issues that might not seem directly related to the business of investment banking. But a lot's changed this past year. Talk a little bit about how you would explain to a shareholder, a potential shareholder, why the firm's dedicating resources, capital and time and our people to an initiative like this. Well, for a long time, we've talked about, you know, the responsibility we have as an organization to help the communities in which we operate in and to make sure that we're finding ways to use our platform to accelerate economic growth. If you look at the purpose of this organization, you know, the purpose of our organization is to advance sustainable economic growth and opportunity. And when you think about some of the things we've done historically, if you go back to 10,000 women, if you look at 10,000 small businesses, what we've learned 
And now we turn our focus to one million black women. We are trying to find ways to use our resources to make sure we are expanding sustainable economic growth in the communities that we operate in. And by the way, that's good for all of us. That's good for the world. That's something that Goldman Sachs tries to do with respect to all of our activities. Now, you highlight, Jake, how things have changed over the course of the year. What I'd say is the lens over the course of the year that we've really tried to operate in is we've amplified really three primary things we've had to do. We've had to take care of our people, make sure they're safe and we protect them. We've had to ensure that in this difficult time for our clients and our customers, that we are serving them well and taking care of them. And we know that we can't do either of those things if we don't support the communities that we're involved in, especially during you know, this time when so many of the disparities have only been amplified. So I think one of the things the pandemic has done is it's really amplified a lot of the disparities and the gaps that exist in society. And I think it's important for us to use our resources to advance economic growth. And by the way, this is good for our country. This is good for the world. If we can close these gaps, Giselle's research shows that we can increase GDP by $300 billion a year by making progress on closing some of those gaps. And that doesn't include the broader knock-on impacts of those improvements that can also drive further economic growth. So I think this is highly aligned with Goldman Sachs's purpose, and it's using our resources in a very, very constructive way. So, Margaret, let's stay on this theme of the relationship to our core business. You ran the Urban Investment Group here at the firm, and that group, for those who don't know, is focused on deploying capital into community economic development, particular emphasis on minority communities. How does this initiative build on that work that you've done as an investor? Sure. I mean, to your question, the work that we've been doing investing in underserved communities not only gives us the expertise and the foundation for this initiative, but specifically it's taught us a lot about the what and the how. You know, so I'll start with the what. As a result of being investors in predominantly Black communities across the country for the last two decades, we've got the chance to see some really impactful solutions and importantly, how to make some of these investments scale, how to make them work even better. And then when things aren't working and we're not seeing the impact we want to see, how to course correct and really improve what we're doing. And so that's taught us a lot about what specific interventions we want to see, what specific investments we should be backing. And that's across all of these themes from the work in housing to education to healthcare access really across the board. But equally as important is the how. And by that, I mean, how you both identify and then implement those solutions. And we realized that to be good investors that could really create long-term value in these communities, we had to work with the experts in those communities. And in communities, those experts are longtime community members. It's local policymakers. It's the small business community. It's, it's the high school principals. You know, we learned that when you listen to, when you learn from, and when you can really invest alongside these partners, it's really the only way forward. Because ultimately, to maximize that impact, there has to be a seat at the table for the people whose lives you're trying to impact. So bringing it back to One Million Black Women, it's these lessons that we've learned over decades across hundreds of transactions across the country. That's really why we're centering Black women and their voices as we invest as capital. And we know by approaching it this way, it's how we can make a really meaningful difference. So, David, you know, for better or for worse, people pay a lot of attention to what happens at Goldman Sachs. You know, you urged employees inside the firm to look up and acknowledge what's happening around us, both inside and outside the firm. How do you hope our stepping into this space and this initiative helps us look up and listen to the voices of Black women? Well, when you look at how this program is being established and what we're doing, I think one of the most important things that we learned from 10,000 women, from 10,000 small businesses, 
is to find people who are living these experiences and to talk to them and listen to them to help us better understand how we can improve lives and improve economic activity. And so if you look at a lot of the investment we're making and how we're thinking about a variety of these things, we're starting by getting a very, very potent advisory council, powerful advisory council that is filled with Black women that can help us make sure we're talking to the right people, understanding the right issues, really, to your point, Jake, looking up and listening. And I think that will help us make better decisions and therefore have better impact on the ultimate result we're trying to drive. Finally, to both of you, looking back on the year, specifically when it comes to conversations around racial equity, what do you think will stay with each of you as a leader going forward? I think there are probably two things that'll stay with me. You know, the conversation around racial equity is as an important one. It's also a difficult one. It's also one that's really personal, right, for people, people on our teams, our clients. And so I think being able to communicate about it in a vulnerable way, in an open way is really important because no matter how difficult these challenges are, we're not going to get anywhere until we start to talk about it more and really understand people's perspectives. And I've seen that from my peers at Goldman, obviously, David's leadership on the topic. And I hope we continue that. I think we're having conversations that, quite frankly, would have felt unimaginable five years ago, 10 years ago. And so I think that's going to be an important thread on how we continue to make progress. How about you, David? I think, Jake, the last year has been very challenging for everybody in so many different ways. You know, I think the events of last June around George Floyd's death and the discussion it prompted inside the firm, as Margaret highlighted, I think I learned a lot by really trying to have conversations that I haven't had with my Black partners and colleagues before that's educated me. You know, even though I've been very focused on DNI and inclusion broadly, I saw a different side to some of these issues. And, you know, I think that's carried forward for me a broader understanding, a broader sense of responsibility, and a broader desire to try to figure out how our organization and our resources can have a broader economic impact. Thanks, David and Margaret. I'll now turn it over to you, Margaret, for a discussion with Melissa Bradley. Thanks, Jake. Welcome, Melissa. Melissa, you're a managing partner of 1863 Ventures, which is a business development program for Black and Brown entrepreneurs and also a co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a coaching community that helps founders of color grow their businesses. You're also an advisory council member of the One Million Black Women Initiative that we've spoken about on this podcast at length. Melissa, welcome to the program. We'll talk about your personal experiences and your work building communities for entrepreneurs. Pleasure to be here. Melissa, we just heard from our CEO, David Solomon, on the role that leaders can play in advancing racial equity. You spent more than 20 years as a leader helping entrepreneurs reach their potential through your organizations, 1863 and Eureka. Tell us how you got started and what personally drew you to this space. Well, first, thank you for having me and extremely excited about this initiative. We're supporting Black women and communities of color is very personal, obviously, as a Black woman and growing up in a community and in a family that did not have a lot of resource in the world of capitalism that is very challenging to show up at school and be the kid who had nothing. So I truly believe that business for a long time was my pathway to success. But after entering corporate America, I realized that probably wasn't going to work out for me since I don't really like taking orders and I don't like wearing a suit. So it was time for me to think of some other options. And being the arrogant and confident person I was graduating from Georgetown with a finance degree, I went to the SBA to pitch a business on financial services. And I had sent my plan in advance. This was all before the lovely email and texting. And I showed up and the woman said to me, we cannot give you a loan for three reasons. And I said, okay, well, let's go. Three reasons. That's that's better than I expected. I thought it was going to be like the paper was going to be bleeding. Let's go. She says, you're black. 
you're a female and I don't know any successful black women in financial services. Well, first, I hope that she could see you because clearly she'd be way wrong. But second, it was appalling to think that I wasn't going to get a loan, not because of a bad business plan, because of her perceptions of me and my potential. So when I got to the bottom of the building, I said, if I ever get successful, I never want this to happen to another black woman. And so most of my life has been through nonprofits and for profits and investing focused on helping black women, but usually black and brown communities in general to create their own wealth, whether it's through 1863 Ventures, where we're de-risking startup founders to help them become CEOs and scale their businesses through it's the various funds that I run or I'm associated with and making investments explicitly in Black women. And then also with Eureka, creating a tech platform that actually allows us to hopefully get to millions of folks to be able to help their businesses scale and grow. And I would say that this focus on Black and Brown It's important to note it's not just because I'm Black, but when you think about the statistics as a finance person, the fastest growing business being created in this country by Black women and the fastest growing businesses once created are Latinx businesses. So it makes complete sense that from an economic perspective on how to improve the economy, we begin to focus on those who are creating the most businesses. And then we also know small businesses create the most jobs. And so for me, it's not just a moral issue, but it's also an economic one when you think about the prosperity and security of this country in the short term and the long term. I mean, you've clearly spent your entire career building communities for what you call these new majority entrepreneurs. How have networks and communities helped you in your career journey? And what role can they play for Black women in accessing that important capital and opportunities? I think networks for me have been important whether it has been networks like Black Student Union when I was on campus to the NAACP chapter, to now alumni relations groups, to sitting on boards of directors. When I think about our recent election, all the political groups that were organizing and helping people get out the vote, I think networks are literally the continuation of the Underground Railroad for the Black community, where it is an opportunity for those who are in leadership to bring the collective along. I think it's important also to note, I was having a conversation with a gentleman named Sai who is the COO of Honeypot. And Honeypot is obviously a well-known company founded by B that was part of the Target campaign and also the scandal where people said, how dare Target put a Black person out there? And he and I were having a very frank conversation about just what does it mean to be a successful Black entrepreneur in this country? And we said, one of the challenges we face is that capitalism is very individualistic and soloistic. Black people operate in a communal sense. We are inherently driven by community. And so there is this inherent tension where people say, well, entrepreneur is a solo sport. Entrepreneurship is not a solo sport for Black people. It is about how do I help myself, but more importantly, how do I create jobs for folks who are not as fortunate as me? How do I create jobs for those brothers and sisters who got caught up in the system? How do I create wealth so that I can take care of my sister's kids, my cousin's kids, give back to my church, and help support the local youth group? So I think networks are just inherent in terms of who we are. It has been part of our collective success. And moving forward, I think they provide anchors and touchstones for us in times of challenge and also an opportunity to help uplift us so that we can find success in our personal journeys. You know, Melissa, given all that, I'm sure that one of the most devastating statistics from our Black Womenomics report for you, and probably, you know, of course, doesn't surprise you, shows that only 0.5% of single Black women in this country own their own business, a rate that's a full 24 times lower than for single white men. I mean, as we think about the broader goal of advancing prosperity for Black women and, and quite frankly, their communities, why does that matter so much? 
Well, I think the, the statistic in and of itself is challenging because I think we can all attest to the vulnerability of having a job, particularly in COVID and the massive layoffs, particularly impacting all women, but Black women. You know, entrepreneurship provides a level of security. It provides a fallback. And for some, it's actually been the patching uh, and the cash flow smoothing between jobs that have ebbed in flow or been retired from or, or forced out from or ripped from. So I think entrepreneurship, I mean, you think about any community that identifies as Black or Afro from the concept of Susan and sharing money and giving money and having collective giving to make sure that the one person is successful, all of us are successful. I think entrepreneurship has always been that signal effect of being able to say, how can we create our own wealth and prosperity? And honestly, I think it's easier to start a business than it is to buy a home, which is, let's be clear, has always been the linchpin of wealth creation in this country. And we've been locked out literally because of systemic racism and legislation and then locked out because of the discrimination of banks. So I take that number and say, Eh, it's low. It's probably lower than I think. I don't know if it respectfully captures the unregistered entrepreneurship that takes place in our communities, if it captures the side hustles, so to speak, that people have in our communities. But I think that, you know, it is a number that I do expect to grow as we know that entrepreneurship writ large is already growing post-COVID. I think for a Black women, at least through 1863, a lot of our entrepreneurs are Black women who are in corporate America and retired. They say, look, I hit the glass ceiling within five to seven years. It's time for me to move on. So so I take the, the number as a data point as a moment in time. I think it is not an exemplar of where the potential and growth is for Black women in entrepreneurship, because anecdotally, I see people signing up and starting new businesses every single day and actively seeking capital. So, you know, Melissa, you're on the advisory council here. We've made it very clear we need to listen. Tell us, what can we be doing to make the most significant impact in the space? Well, I think you did the first thing. You know, I will say, as I shared, my phone, my texts are blowing up from people I talk to every day to people I haven't heard from in 20 years or even since when I was an undergrad. And so I think the most important thing you could do is to signal that this is important. I think this is significant for a couple of reasons. I'm a finance major. So I think, first of all, the $10 billion, I'm going to put philanthropy on the side because respectfully, that's already happening and, and other people are doing that. But the $10 billion from an asset management firm, I mean, like if people do not get the significance of that, then we're really in trouble because what you have done is not just signaled that's a large number, but you've signaled that you actually believe that there is that much investment potential in our community. Now, I know that, and you know that from your time running Urban Investment Group, but most of those dollars come in the form of gentrification. When you talk about housing and pushing us out, most of those come in jobs relocating, companies relocating to the suburbs, and people like me can't get there. And so I think really putting a number on that to signal that $10 billion, that is the largest we've ever seen. We see a lot of $100 million this, $100 million that, but I think $10 billion, that was the most important thing. I think the second thing is that it was holistic in nature. I sit in the world of entrepreneurship. I see new initiatives every day. I'm also blessed to be a homeowner. I'm also blessed to be an investor. I don't know that anyone has ever thought about me holistically as a mother of six, as a person married, happen to be married to another woman, a person who is a professor, a person who cares about my kids' education, a person who had a stroke last year and now has subsequent challenges. No one has ever looked at my well-being holistically from a housing, health, education, and professional perspective. 
This is for me the first time in 52 years that I have seen a program that says the black woman is the epicenter of not just their own community, but of an entire nation. And we need to respect them and provide the support in all aspects of their life because they're a human being. They are not just domestic worker and people need to care about child care. They are not just a healthcare worker and people need to care about do they get vaccinated or not. We are people who take on the burden of our families, of our families, families, and of entire community. And we need to be invested across the board. Otherwise, what good is it if I'm a successful entrepreneur and I can't get the COVID vaccine? I mean, it's just absolutely absurd. And so the extreme interconnectedness and implications of not being able to have access to all you need to be a successful human and a healthy individual has actually undermined how we have been able to advance as a community because we have been over-invested or over-indexed in some and under-invested and under-indexed in other, and we've come out negative. And this is a chance for us to be right-sized as a community, as our value, and actually change the narrative around the power of Black women. Melissa, thank you so much for being on the program. And more importantly, thank you for being on our council with this initiative. It was a pleasure to talk to you. My pleasure, and thank you. Thank you again to our guests, Giselle, Margaret, David, and Melissa. That concludes this episode of Exchange Goldman Sachs. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. And please tune in later in the week for our weekly markets update for more on the latest in markets. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.